the night. I am Matt Lazowitz, and welcome to another episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week. My co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on our big list, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Will, what's going on tonight? Got a heavy heart tonight, Matt. It's been brought to my attention this last week that I haven't been doing a good job, that uh, that I've been slacking off. I don't know how many weeks ago it was when we did uh, Haikatia, when I, I came out with The four rules, wait, not even four, the three rules of this show. And I've been slacking off. I haven't said butthole for weeks. And and to all the listeners out there, I'm real sorry. And uh, of course, that doesn't count because that's lazy and cheap. But I'm going to get back on it. I'm going to get back on that butthole horse. And I'm going to find a way. I'm going to persevere. I'm going to triumph. And I'm going to get better. And with your help... We're going to do this. It's all right. I'm going to shake that out, shake out that negative energy. I'm ready to go, Matt. Let's do it. So before we get into the rest of the show and introduce our special guest, we have a new Patreon backer to thank. Let's thank Abigail Hartbaum, our newest Jason Todd tier backer. Thank you, Abigail. Choosing evil like all the good Jason Todds out there. (laughs) But as I said a moment ago, We've got a guest tonight coming to us live, fellow writer at Comics XF, Armand Babu. How are you in this morning, your time, Armand? <laughs> I'm, I'm doing well. This is, uh, this is a good way to start the day. How's the future? Is it any better? It's pretty sunny. Hey, oh. hey that's a start. I yeah, will, yeah. I will take that. So, Armand, what are your earliest Batman memories? I'd say the very earliest would have to be a Batman kite, I once had. It was a nice kite. It got stuck in a tree once. And we had to use a Mickey Mouse kite to get it done. But uh, story-wise, I would have to say the animated series. I, I happen to live in a very small village at the edge of a very small town, so I didn't always have TV, so uh, getting to see an animated anything was always a special treat if I was at someone else's house or something like that, until, you know, I grew up, uh, until, you know, I was a bit older, but the uh, Batman animated series was always an exciting time. It was a great introduction to all things Batman. Uh, Maybe if not- DC ever buys... Uh, or excuse me, if Marvel ever buys DC, I'm going to say that Armand, the kites, have foretold it. <laughs> oh, uh, also the uh, the Michael Keaton movie. Yeah? We had that on uh, VHS. We had we had a decent VHS collection before moving to India. Um, when I was in about 1996 is when I moved here, and uh, uh, yeah, uh, and oh, I remember seeing Batman and Robin that movie for the first time as a kid. That movie is great. Matt's favorite Batman. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Not at all. Kevin Conroy. It's absolutely George Clooney. Uh, (laughs) So this week, you know, we asked Armand what what he wanted to talk about. And Armand went with JLA stories featuring Batman. So this is going to be one of our deepest dives into Batman within the greater context of the DC universe. This is going to be some fun stuff. And we are going to start with 
the very beginning of the JLA of the 90s, or late 90s into the 2000s, New World Order, JLA issues one through four. These issues are written by Grant Morrison, penciled by Howard Porter, inked by John Dell, colored by Pat Garrahy and Heroic Age, lettered by Ken Lopez, and edited by Ruben Diaz. The cover dates are January to April of 1997. In this story, a new team of alien heroes calling themselves the Hyper Clan appear on Earth and begin performing all manner of big showy deeds. But it's quickly realized by the Justice League that the Hyper Clan are nowhere near as altruistic as they seem. And a confrontation between the two teams commences. This is the beginning of Grant Morrison's run on JLA. And is Morrison entering the mainstream of the DC universe? Before this, Morrison had been known mostly for off-center DC, Doom Patrol, Animal Man, Arkham Asylum, which we discussed last week. Now, DC had given them the keys to the kingdom, and we were getting Morrison writing the flagship book for DC Comics. Now, Will, this is your first time on this one? Yes. And Armand, why did you pick this particular story? The other two uh, Batman stories I picked are some of my favorites, but I, I was trying to think of a third one. And I think this is the story that really changed who Batman was uh, in, a, in a lot of ways. Uh, he's always, I mean, he's been a, a, a member of the Justice League for a while, and uh, but I think this is the one where it finally cemented the idea of Batman could defeat pretty much anyone or anything if you give him a little time to prepare, if you let him do his detective work for, for a little thing. It went overboard in a lot of places, but this run, especially rereading it, it's, it's a very effective uh, Batman piece. And we see that theme continued in the next story as well. The idea that Batman can beat anybody. Mm. This story has what is one of my three favorite Batman moments of all time. Because the thing that I love about the sequence in issue three, where the hyper clan surrounds Batman is that this isn't, the gadget god that Morrison will create later in Justice League, where Batman has a crazy gadget for everything. This isn't the Batman who is so hyper-prepared that he builds a backup personality in his head if he's ever broken down, like we see in later Morrison. This is a Batman who, when given just enough evidence and enough clues is able to figure out the weakness of his enemy and take them out through sheer guts, cleverness, and whatever he can come up with. And it's such a cool scene. <laughs> he's almost smug in it. He's not entirely, he's not insufferable because partially because the hyper clan are pretty insufferable. I'm trying not to give it away and we're going to be discussing this story in depth, but where he triggers his trap and 
the hyperclutter fr- freaking out. He just cracks his knuckles. Ready when you are. It's so good. It's, it's so good. <laughs> All right, Matt, you 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 brought the motion to the table. I want to hear it out. Your three top Batman moments. Uh the number three slot rotates. It's, it's sort of a, but numbers one and two are fixed. It's that, that three page sequence and the banquet scene from year one. Uh, yeah, of course. Of course. Those are the, those are the top two. And a third one is kind of always like, let's see what, what, what's hitting my particular fancy this week. There's, and some of them aren't these intense moments. Some of them are, sometimes it'll be that moment where you see Bruce has a heart. I love a good a Batman having a, a soft moment. There's a moment from an episode of Batman, the animated series that actually might be number three. Cause it's one I always remember. And I think I've talked about it on the show before, but it's from the episode Harley's holiday where Harley Quinn is let out of Arkham, a series of, crazy circumstances happen and she winds up having to get sent back in the end all because she bought the first piece of clothing that she's gotten to buy as a free woman. She didn't get that stupid security tag taken off of it. And in the end, Harley gets brought back to Arkham and Batman's waiting and he hands her the dress and she's like, why'd you do it? And his, I had a bad day too once. And it's just this moment where it shows that Batman has a heart and that is so often forgotten where Batman is the sort of cold figure. I like when there is some warmth there, but back to, to new world order. Yeah. I mean, this story happens after the justice league as a title is back at sort of a real Valley because you, you had the Giffen Demetrius justice league, that the Bwahaha era, which is fun and well-regarded. And then given the Mateus League, and the, the, towards the end of that run, it's not quite as good, but it's still pretty solid. Then Dan Jurgens comes on, and it's a solid 90s superhero book. But Jurgens leaves less than a year after the death of Superman, and then it becomes this rotating selection of writers and artists and... It never quite reaches Justice League Detroit levels of obscure characters, but it's not the A-list. So this is the book that pushes the Justice League back into an A-list property. When you get the Magnificent Seven, the original founding members of the Justice League, even if some of them are the then current versions of those characters, and Morrison just takes them in very Morrisonian direction. The, this, these first four issues, though, are also a really great reintroduction for, to the characters. And I had forgotten just how uncomfortable this team was with each other right at the beginning. And it's it, it being brought up a lot. Like, Wally West did not like uh, Kyle Rayner at all. Kyle Rayner was extremely uncomfortable in this new role. And Batman was clearly did not trust anyone else on the team aside from maybe Superman. He respected them all, but it felt like he was only coming in as sort of like this league consultant. 
and he, uh, he, he getting ahead of ourselves again is just sort of uh, comes in to fix up everyone's mess after the league gets captured. I, I what I enjoyed is after the threat is established because the first issue includes a lot. Like they move together at a pretty quick pace. Hyperclan comes in and um, they they try to uh, reinvigorate the Gobi Desert, and uh, it's not long before they move. St- quickly on to ex, you know executing criminals which and then attacking the justice league all of that just happens within the first issue itself which is uh, a lot for a first issue we still weren't at the point of decompression where what would be a first issue is now six yeah even then batman doesn't show up until pretty much right at the end of the issue where it where you know he makes one hell of an entrance I've been here for an hour. It's, it's so good. It's like, yeah, I couldn't even. Yeah. That, there's a little bit of the gadget god there, where it's you know, oh, I couldn't even hear your heartbeat. Huh? Worked. <laughs> oh, Bruce. And I do it. And okay, when we're gonna be spoiling a 24 year old story here because we're gonna give mm-hmm. away the twist. Not having realized it at the time, it's like, oh wait, reading it in retrospect, how did I not realize they were Martians? <laughs> the, the the name of the city with the apostrophes is like oh come on, they're clearly Martians. The another clue should have been just all of them suddenly using heat vision to uh, execute one of the criminals because, like initially, like all of them had different unique powers, but then suddenly they they had you know they were doing similar things. They didn't have a good plan on how to separate their powers right right at the uh, at the beginning. Reading it. In retrospect, knowing that twist, the fact that they laid the groundwork with the mentions that Firehawk and Fire are both sick and have lost their powers, that's right there in issue one. It's like, good on you, Morrison, putting in just that little clue right at the beginning. It's, it's very subtly done. I see it, what you did there. Yeah, and yeah, it yeah. works so well when you know what's coming. I, I, it's amazing that they never mentioned it again. Like it's just just those the two mentions in the first two page. Fire sick and Firehawk is sick. Lost their powers. In fact, I didn't even realize it knowing the twist until later on when everyone's fighting them back with fire. I just I love the second issue where the league breaks up into smaller teams. That's how every Silver Age Justice League story worked. Literally, it was, you'd get an introduction, you'd get three chapters with smaller Justice Leagues, and then they would come back together in the end. And that's exactly how this story works. And here you have the added depth of just uh, playing with, you know, character dynamics. Wonder Woman and Aquaman are, are, you know, Aquaman barely wants to be part of the team. Kyle Rayner and... uh, Wally West are butting heads, and Superman and Batman are discussing the team that they built. Of course, Plastic Man comes later, but uh, uh, I, w- I would have enjoyed him being a part of this issue. I know mean, part of being part of things this early, but uh, he 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 adds a great thing to the dynamic as well. But again, getting ahead of ourselves with Plastic Man here. <laughs> so, Will, what were your first impressions? Because this was your first time in this story. I think in, in reading the, the Morrison books I have for this show, what is it? Uh, Clown at Midnight. And did we read something? Arkham Asylum. 
Arkham Asylum, yeah. It's very dense. Morrison's writing is not something you can just breeze through. We get in this the second story we read tonight, you know, Wade is much more, I think, of a of a pop writer. Like he is action oriented. It's it goes down real smooth. Uh, and that's not to say it's that it's bad, but it it's not as again dense. That's that's sort of the first feelings I get as I'm reading Morrison. So overall, I think the story works. I like the idea that Batman is inherently distrustful of anyone who says we're here to help. We're from uh, we're from the space government, and we're here to help. Um, and I've mentioned this on the show before. That was a central problem I had with Tom King's. Gotham and Gotham Girl. Like the first time a new hero shows up in Gotham, Batman should say, who the fuck do you think you are? Why the fuck should I trust you? Get the fuck out of my city until I believe that I can trust you. Uh, and here he's like, yeah, I don't, uh, I don't like these guys, you know, and I'm, we're going to figure out what's going on. So I like that, uh, that dynamic. And certainly I like in this issue how, again, Batman was able to, to figure this shit out it's so interesting reading this again Armand you talked about it a little about how this is such a snapshot of where the DC universe was at this point it was fascinating to me as I'm reading it Wally's talking about the speed field because this was not too long after the speed force was created as a concept so that hasn't completely gelled yet. So it's just like, wow, they weren't even using the phrase that is now such a part of the DC Universe lexicon or Kyle making a comment about Alex. And, you know, don't you miss when villains, you know, would just want to rob a bank. Now they're going to kill your girlfriend, stuff her in her fridge. It's like, Oh, you, you really, this was before you could not just mention that off the cuff. Yeah, that I think that was the weirdest part of, of this four issue series. Um, just the casual way with which he brought that up. That was, that was odd. Yeah. <laughs> it made me want to go back and reread Morrison's entire arc on Justice League because I'm pretty certain there's things that they're setting up here that echo even towards the end of the run because there's that bit at the end when Superman is facing down Protex and Protex doesn't understand why Superman is willing to do this and to defend humanity that are these broken nothing creatures and Clark says they believe in me and in my heart I believe in them. And then he gives that speech that inspires the people of earth to stand up and light the flames that drive back the white Martians. And at the very end, in the final arc of this run, Clark has been captured by Mageddon. That's the big, big bad. And Bruce 
gets patched into Clark telepathically, but I think it's telepathically by Jean or somehow. And Bruce Jean, gives him the rousing speech, the most human member of the Justice League. It's now his turn to inspire Superman to stand up because he's been broken by Mageddon. And it's it's a mirror to that opening sequence or that the end of the first arc is now mirrored at the end of the last arc. And that absolutely strikes me as something Morrison intended. That's not coincidence. I read very little in Morrison's work that is coincidence. It's a good contrast because the Batman here, especially the way issue three sets him up, is very, very cold. He is, he's shadows and intimidation. And the third issue sets him up fantastically. Protex keeps talking about how Batman is just a human, just a human. Things start going wrong. People start to suspect that, you know, there might be more to this Batman guy than they suspected. And Protex just keeps pushing that idea of this is ridiculous. No, no human could possibly be doing all these things. And then we get that, that, that first inkling with Batman with that adorable little note he places on 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 on, on uh, a mortal i know your secret exclamation point it's it's very john mcclain right it's very like <laughs> yes. come on it, it's just one guy come on what what, what I, can yeah, he do i snuck into your systems i'm taking I, I can take you out one by one i'm running around barefoot out here <laughs> bleeding everywhere and i love as uh, towards the end of issue four where Batman comes and he's dragging four of them behind him and Green Lantern's just like, oh, only four, you're slowing down, huh, Bats? <laughs> and he's so clearly like has the freaking out because it took, you know, Superman took out one, Wonder Woman took out one, Flash took out one, Martian Man, the, the big hitters took out one and Batman's just dragging four of them behind him. To get one after they were soundly defeated by them in issue two. This is Batman's first time going up against them, and he takes out four at once. This is, this is as he's saying how prepared he is to, in case of another situation, hold his breath for three minutes and 15 seconds if he needed to. <laughs> why would That's a very to... important thing to know. <laughs> why, why would you need to know this? <laughs> it's so good. Do you guys know how long you can hold your breath? <gasps> Not that long. <laughs> Okay, we'll get back to you, Will, in about maybe two minutes, 15 seconds or so. <laughs> Another fun note, all four issues are titled after classic science fiction films. Oh, them, I noticed that. Yeah, I didn't until the time. Them, The Day the Earth Stood Still, War mm-hmm. of the Worlds, and Invaders from Mars. Invaders from Mars is a good one to end it out on. <laughs> That one's a bit on the nose by that point, but we, we know everything there. Uh, I also like there's that moment when the <sighs> hyperplanner. Oh, yeah, that was how long was that? Will that was that was long enough, long yeah. enough, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> when the hyperplanner executing the various super criminals, you look at them, one of them is clearly a smoldering Wolverine. <laughs> <laughs> I missed that too. Oh man. The, the one place where, and I probably would have been too easy a moment. 
I was surprised with the reread that there aren't any real clues to the hyper clans Martian origins in the sequence where Jean is talking to Protex in issue two, but that might've been two on the nose, a two on the nose moment to give that away. Mm. Yeah. I, I believe the focus there was to make it seem like John would betray the league just because he is the loneliest member of them. That's an interesting thing to do because we've haven't Jean had been really shuffled off to the side for quite mm. some time he had been moved over as sort of the trainer in Justice League task force he hadn't been in Justice League America for a while and so now you've brought him back and Morrison is giving him a central spot and we'll get the Martian Manhunter ongoing spinning out of the Morrison run, a vastly underrated series from John Ostrander and Tom Mandrake, a series I has a lot of really good Martian Manhunter material and some really good stuff in it. Does anybody have anything? Else? Oh, and uh, the Howard Porter art probably should mention the art. Howard Porter is a really solid superhero artist. Yes. I, I'm not sure if I would want to sit back and read a Howard Porter drawn issue where it's two characters sitting, having a conversation, but for big superhero action, Porter does a great job. Yeah. Cause there are a lot of, when you focus on just the, the human aspects of this, it, it, the art gets weird. Um, there are a lot of moments where the art does feel very weird when they're focusing on the more human characters. Wonder Woman is in, the, in these first four issues especially feels very off, but some of the action, especially with the White Martians that's being done here, is incredible. John sort of reforming himself out of different particles. Uh, there's this point, I think, later on in the, the last battle where this woman is just She's not, she's white Martian, so she has, you know, complete molecular control of her body. She disintegrates into like these little, they look like, like white pebbles. And that disintegration is what attacks Superman and sends him to the roof. And that is, that's just a breathtaking uh, moment. And I believe Porter redesigned the white Martians. I don't believe they looked exactly like this in their one or two Silver Age appearances before they disappeared. So I really like that creepy design with the fanged mouth and the secondary fanged mouth in their midsection. It's mm. the stuff of nightmares. They are very scary, yeah. Anything else, Will, before we move uh, on? I'm good. Okay, then I think it's time. <laughs> time to put it on the board. All right, so right now we have 48 stories on our list. Number one is Batman Year One from Batman Volume One, numbers 404 to 407. Number 10 is Six Fingers from Legends of the Dark Knight, numbers 85 to 88. Number 20 is Fear for Sale from Detective 571. Number 30 is Arkham Asylum Living Hell. 
Number 40 is Batman Holy Terror. And continuing to bring up the rear is Superman and Batman versus Vampires and Werewolves. Slow and steady and shitty as all hell. So, what are we thinking here? Top half, no, no doubt in my mind. Uh, not as brave and bold as Arkham Asylum, but I think more successful than Clown at Midnight. Yes. So, I mean, that gives us because quite a range is Arkham Asylum is number nine and Clown at Midnight is 28. All right. Well, here's here's something. Number 18 is Homewreckers Life on Mars, the all ages Batman, the Brave and the Bold number 20 that has a Martian Manhunter story and a white Martian in it. Well, that's a fun story. I mean, this again, defining Batman moment for me. This has a really impressive Batman moment. So I think it definitely goes above that. Agreed. What's your ceiling on this one, Will? I was just about to ask you that. So if we say that it's it's better than uh, Brave and the Bold at 18. But not as uh, not Arkham Asylum at 9. That narrows things down. I don't think it beats Haikatia at 12. So it looks like we're in the middle teens. Yeah. I think we're looking at the 13-14 area. Lil Gotham is cute. Lil Gotham is fun. I really like Lil Gotham. But that's an off you know, an AU, a not, you know, in the DC universe. This is a story that, aside from having a definitive Batman moment for me, also puts Batman dead center in the DC universe. Before this, in the post-crisis continuity, sure, Batman had been on the Justice League during the Giffen and Dimitteis era, but he was rarely a central figure in that era. There's maybe there's one two issue story where Bruce Wayne has to go undercover in Bialya. But that's more of a Bruce Wayne story. And Batman was there just sort of as the straight man for all the wackiness going on around him. This is the story that's like Batman is part of the central pantheon of the, the heroes of the DC universe, not just for sales, but because he has a, a seat at the table. My take would be to put this at 15 because, again, I'm a fucking moron. I like good, tight, easily consumable stories. And for me, Sleigh Ride is just a lot of fun. I'd slot it just a little bit below that, even though this story is deeper and more, uh, we'll say, intellectual, whereas Sleigh Ride's just a good fucking time. I mean, you're, you're putting it up against the story where Tim Drake is tied up in a car with the Joker. So my favorite supervillain, my favorite Robin, I, I can't, I, that is a, a respectable place to put this story. 
Hitting so, a man at his weak points. Yep. So that will make this our new number 15, New World Order. That was the NWO theme for you people who don't like wrestling. <laughs> new, new world order. Okay. So we are now flashing forward from the first arc of the Morrison run to the first arc of the next creative team or writer at least on the JLA series. This is Tower of Babel. JLA numbers 43 to 46. Writers Mark Wade, penciled by Howard Porter, with the last issue penciled by Steve Scott, inked by Drew Garashi, Grassi, or Garashi, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, uh, with the final issue inked by Mark Probst, uh, colors by Pat Garrahy and Heroic Age, and then John Kalish and Heroic Age on the final issue. Lettered all the way through by Ken Lopez, edited all the way through by Dan Raspler and Tony Bettered. Cover date is July to October of the year 2000. In this story, Raish al Ghul acquires plans that he uses to take out the various members of the Justice League while setting forth his own plan to once again winnow humanity down to a manageable amount using a device that impedes humans' ability to communicate. Eventually, the League learns where Al Ghul found these plans and leads to a crisis within their membership amongst who they can trust. This is the story that really begins Batman down a path that will come to a head multiple times where the Batman doesn't trust anybody writ large. It's because, I mean, again, I'm going to spoil a 21-year-old story. The plans that Rachel Ghoul finds, acquires to take out the Justice League, yeah, those are Batman's plans. And Al Ghoul has found them stolen them and has used them against Batman's own teammates. Something that the league is not terribly happy about, as you might imagine. And it's not just that they were disabled or sidelined. They were disabled and, and pushed off the table in very graphic, unsettling, upsetting ways. Like you could certainly see why they would be uh, not so pleased with Batman. And here's here's kind of my like whole feel reading this story. This seems very much in the darkness that Wade explores here. This feels very much to me like a dry run for Irredeemable, right? He, he gets probably right up there to the line of just sort of the, the dark kind of story you could tell in the DC universe, say, before Black Label or something like that. There is just some, again, just really, really unsettling stuff in this series. And it's really enhanced by the way it's described. The, the, the writing here, the, the captions that we get. I'm, I'm usually not a big fan of, of captions explaining every little thing that's going on, but Justice League always 
uh, jail, even with the, uh, you know, it was there with Grant Morrison, it's there with Wade. Describing just the significance of the moment that's happening is 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 chilling. Plastic Man doesn't get it so much, but uh, Martian Manhunter's description that his that his skin's burning alive when Wonder Woman is forced to uh, fight a VR version of herself and how it's pushing her almost to a heart attack. The 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 light speed seizure that Flash is giving it sticks with you. Like I, rereading this, I felt like I could almost you know sort of read the captions out verbatim, remembering them from the first time I wrote it. it it's got a heavy impact. Chilling is a great word uh, to describe it. That's absolutely on point. Even though you don't find out until the end of issue two that these are Batman's plans, again, there's little bits that are like, okay, Aquaman is hit with fear toxin. Who would have access to fear (laughs) toxin? Oh, right. The guy who's always fighting, the guy who's shooting fear toxin all over the joint. Oh, Bruce. Oh, oh, Bruce. What's interesting about these countermeasures is is how personal they are. Because for a stake of example for the Flash's thing, because the Flash is faster than Superman, who is faster than speeding bullets. It could the Flash could very easily have avoided his fate if he dodged the bullet instead. But Batman understands Flash well enough to know that the Flash would instinctively vibrate, which is why that bullet caused him to have those weird seizures instead, because Flash was trying to vibrate to it. Which uh, and and Wonder Woman, knowing her well enough that she would not give up no matter what until she got a heart attack on battle. That's that personal. That's that's painful. Yeah. It's Bruce at his most calculating. And it's interesting that Wade, the, the, the story that Wade references as to why Batman has these countermeasures, that fifth week Silver Age event that nobody remembers anymore, <laughs> that is a lost story. It's interesting to see how other writers have built on that because that's where and I'm never sure with that hive mind that was happening in the mid 2000s whether or not it was Johns or Rucka who were kind of like okay this is the kind of thing where with that things like that an identity crisis where Batman would come up with brother I but that again spins back to this it also these countermeasures and bruce knowing his teammates rings far truer than a similar sequence one of my opposite and least favorite sequences of all time the fight with deathstroke in identity crisis number three where deathstroke does so like well he's had this plan out of how to fight all these members of the justice league And you get a moment at the end of that that makes zero sense where Kyle Rayner, who is not a hand-to-hand combatant, somehow Deathstroke counted on Kyle Rayner to take a swing at him so he could grab (laughs) the ring hand and use his own willpower. Kyle Rayner's never taken a swing at anybody when his ring is charged in the history of that character. That that is there's not a logic there, but 
everything Bruce does here, as, it, as you said, Armand, is exactly what he would have come up with. And while many of these countermeasures are lethal, Jean's would have killed him. Arthur's would have killed him. The one that has a that went out of its way to be a non-lethal countermeasure is Superman. Because he's the one guy that Bruce probably Bruce went out of his way. He had an easy, deadly option, but instead he created a non-deadly option out of the deadly option. Because I think Bruce would have always believed that Clark could have come back around because he's the one guy who's his friend amongst them. Over the years now, it's been more and more firmly established that it's Diana is as well. But at this point, it was still really just Bruce and Clark. I think you could easily frame that another way, though. The green kryptonite eventually kills him. This, uh, this red or engineered kryptonite is simply excruciating. Another thing that gets me is the latter half of the story, after the League has uh, recovered from this, it keeps showing how on edge they are. There's, there's a space given to the moments. To, there, there's li- these little things. Plastic Man's no longer making jokes. He's not even shape-shifting that much. They're snapping at each other. They're snapping at Batman. And Batman is already rattled because he's had to follow his parents' bodies across the globe, but he's not giving them any explanations whatsoever, aside from Superman. But the League is clearly... They've gone up against gods. They've saved the multiverse several times. But you have things like Superman flinching because there's a red alarm light because he's so afraid that it might be the synthetic kryptonite again. Batman is great at terrifying people and these were just his plans. It wasn't even Batman, but he terrified the league. He 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 sort That's of his broke deal. them. Yeah. He broke them and he wasn't even trying to. And that 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 again is is very chilling. You mentioned there, but yeah, the fact that the one he didn't have the plan for uh, himself, Rage comes up with that pretty easy. Let me just steal his <laughs> parents' bodies. That's utterly horrifying. Yeah. This, aside from introducing the completely distrustful Batman, is also significant in DC history and in Batman's history, as this is the story that finally separates Talia and Rage. This is the last story where they worked together. After this, there might be one. I can't remember where this lines up with the Rucka detectives. No, because this is after that. This is because No Man's Land lines up with the 20s and 30s of Justice League. And we're now in the 40s. Because I'm pretty sure Talia was still there early on in Rucka's detective. But after this, it would be when Talia takes over LexCorp when Lex is president and she and Raish are never on the same page after this. You'll get that period. Then you'll get death in the maidens where Nissa appears and they kill Raish and then Damien. And we've never seen them work together intimately since then. 
So this is a fairly significant change in that status quo. I'd forgotten how long it's been that, you know, she wasn't just Raish's daughter, but was a force to be reckoned with on her. I mean, she always was a force to be reckoned with on her own, but it's been that long since she deferred to Raish. I do not know the word that word. This is where, I mean, I see the split happen here. I have no idea how, how well it stuck. Yeah, I, I there might be a, a, another story or two, but this is, I'm fairly certain, the moment where they stop being a cohesive unit like they were back in the 70s and 80s, where she would always choose Raish in the end over Bruce. I mean, there is a weird bit there where she, this is the first time that he's sent me to assassinate someone like yeah no That's I, don't, <laughs> I don't buy that but this is the first time I guess she sent you to screw over your beloved's friends I can go with that but when we first met Talia she was an assassin That's <laughs> th- this is Wade making a point I, have, I, I think I think it's hurting Superman that broke her. I think she's she would be okay hurting Batman as many times as you know the story demanded, but seeing Superman that hurt is uh, that that that's what turned her. I mean, I think seeing you know transparent skinned Superman would freak anybody. Out. <laughs> you know Jack. what I'm amused by for by the story is. Uh, the site of one of the league's greatest defeats in, in their history. Because I'd say this is a pretty significant Justice League defeat. Happened in Kyle Rayner's apartment. Kyle Rayner's apartment, site of one of the Justice League's greatest defeats. You could make it a little museum. A morbid, <laughs> morbid <laughs> museum. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to just mention one brief thing as I feel like we're wrapping up here. Guest artist there in issue number four, not good. Not good <laughs> stuff. Specifically, the um, one of these uh, panels here on page five of, uh, of issue four. I don't know what's going on with that, uh, that third shot of uh, Superman and uh, or the second and third shot of Superman and Batman flying. Uh, no, no, just not good stuff. There are a couple of little bits in this story that are a little bit uncomfortable. I find it strange to introduce the fictitious nation of Rapastan, which had never appeared before this, and then having them in a war with Turkey, a real country. That's an odd choice. Usually these fictitious countries are at war with other fictitious countries or America. It seems like an odd odd choice to use a real nation in such a belligerent manner. Yeah. And the Atlanteans acting as peacekeepers, bringing in another fictitious country. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's why, you know, Wakanda is usually having issues with Latveria because you don't (laughs) want to have Wakanda at war with the Cote d'Ivoire or something. It just has some strange real world connotations that you kind of don't want to go near. I also noted the 
description of Rachel Ghoul at the beginning of issue two, he's described as the Asian terrorist Rachel Ghoul. Oof. Did not like that. Oof. <laughs> he's described in. I, I, it feels like there were no sense this that he's like eco terrorist. They never use that description again. But I read that I was like, ooh, no. I mean, Raish is a character who was a yellow peril villain transposed into the Middle East because he's the, the initial concept. He's Fu Manchu, basically less offensive because he's less stereotyped, but only by the standards of the 70s versus the 30s. But using that describer for race is like, oh, I don't like that. Yeah. Two more notes. I, I, I sorry to interrupt, Armand. Go ahead. Speaking of race, uh, his costume looks so ridiculous in the context of a modern <laughs> book. And uh, I did not care for how this arc wrapped up. I thought the back half of four was entirely too drawn out and way too talky. Like they were just sort of padding out those last couple of pages. The the Justice League's debate over yeah. Batman? Yeah. Huh. I, I disagree, but I think part of it is because I came into this backwards. My first Justice League issue was the issue that happened right after this. I didn't actually read Tower of Babel until like months and months and months later. So I knew that Batman had been voted out of the league. I didn't know how it happened. And when I finally got to read Tower of Babel, I was like, oh, 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 this is the moment. This is what happens. This is really exciting. I, I, could, I could see how that would change your read on it. I still think we could have tightened it up, though. But I'm an <laughs> asshole and you're the guest. So you, you win the point. I also think I it's no funny. Idea I got points. That's, yeah. You should have mentioned this earlier, man. I would have been way more excited. <laughs> oh, uh, one more thing I did want to mention is I find it really interesting how, because these aren't technically, like they, they hurt the league and they traumatize them very well, but it doesn't actually stop the league. The league recovers from this. So in a way, Batman's plan sort of failed. And I like the way it fails because the Justice League helps each other out. That's one thing Batman never accounted for. And he didn't have to because he assumed the league would be evil here. But Wonder Woman makes a great point. You don't beat this plan by being smarter than Batman. You just do what Batman would never do, and that is accept help from other people. And um, to help you out, Will, um, for one of your stated goals, one of the ways um, in which uh, the League helped each other out is the Flash had to reconstitute Plastic Man from all those tiny little frozen bits, which would have included reconstituting Plastic Man's butthole. That counts. That counts. That one does count. Uh, I also find that since you, I mean, you mentioned Batman, the animated series, the Justice League, the season finale of season two of that animated series cribs the ending of this story only with Hawkgirl as the Mm -hmm. member of the league that they're trying to decide whether or not to vote out. It's fairly standard superhero stuff, but clearly there's echoes of this story in that one. It's, it's heartbreaking every time when you have to vote a member out of a team, especially Justice League. I feel Justice League more than Avengers because Justice League always did feel, at least when it's being written well, like like these people really care about each other. Yeah, these the League are often friends. The Avengers are a lot of times co-workers. Mm. So 
unless either of you have any more notes. Uh, that means Good. it's time to put it on the board. For me, this doesn't beat New World Order. So we'll start there. My personal preference is that it does, but I'll concede the point. But that means these, I think these two things are going to be tight. They're going to be tight. Mm. You know what, Armand? You're the tiebreaker here. For me, this actually does break. Uh, for me, it's a better story overall than, than New World Order. Okay. Boom! I, Boom! I am. That is why sometimes we have a third. You know, we need that third voice. <laughs> I have that that soft spot for New World Order, so I am willing to. So okay, so it, it beats New World Order. Is it then right above New World Order? Does this beat Sleigh Ride? You know, I might. It's more Batman. Sleigh Ride only has Batman for two panels. Does it beat 66, the lost episode? I don't think it beats Heikatia, another Batman in the greater DC universe. This might be have more Batman in it, but that the art on that last issue suffers, and the Heikatia is so gorgeous all the way through. On balance, that makes the Heikatia a better comic. Absolutely. I'll agree there. And I think. You know, again, we come back to this point that what Wade does here is very chilling, but I'm not sure he has a whole lot to say. He's just he's just doing some fucked up stuff uh, to make the larger point that, you know, Batman will go to some fucked up places to beat people he who he perceives as enemies. But that's about all he has to say, whereas I think Haikatia makes just some really deep emotional points and this just kind of stays at that level (laughs) okay so so that puts it between 12 and 15 so does it go right above new world order does it go above sleigh so we the only stories in between heikatia and new world order are batman 66 the lost episode and sleigh ride I really like Sleigh Ride. I do too. I'll say that again. Uh, I think these are right on top of each other. I think this now becomes our new number 15, pushing New World Order down to number 16. And this is, by the way, the 50th story that we have ranked. Woo! Honored to have been here for this moment. We're glad to have you. Half a hundy. We are moving along. We now move on to our final story of the night. This one is from the next creative team on Justice League. This is Bouncing Baby Boy from JLA number 65. The writer is Joe Kelly. Pencils by Doug Monkey. Inks by Tom Nguyen. Colors by David Barron. Letters by Ken Lopez. Edited by Dan Raspler and Stephen Wacker. Uh, Cover date of June of 2002. Uh, Here, Plastic Man asks Batman to help him help an ex-girlfriend of his whose son has gotten involved in some gang activity, only for Batman to learn there's a lot more than meets the eye to this 
kid and his relation to Plastic Man. This is obviously the shortest of our stories tonight. This one's only a single issue versus these two big sweeping stories. This is much more of a character piece, a, a Plastic Man character piece. I have to say, as a Plastic Man character piece, Doug Manke is having a lot of fun with Plastic Man here. I don't think there are any... there. In almost in every single Plastic Man panel, he's doing something different with his shape-shifting. He's, he's a bug in one panel. He's a, he's a heel in another. He's, he's making little um, strippers appear out of his arms in another panel. It's, it's, there's a lot of fun with the, with, the, with the malleability of Plastic Man's character here, just, just on a purely visual level. The, uh, the sight gags work better than the dialogue. I'll say that. <laughs> I think this is the book where Monkey really breaks out as an artist. He's someone who I always feel like Doug Monkey is one book away from being a major A-list talent. And he never gets that book. He's done Batman. He's done Superman. He's done Justice League. He's on these A-list properties, but he's never, he was one of the artists on Final Crisis, but he never gets that mentions in the same breaths as some of these other huge name artists. He's, I believe, the co-creator of The Mask. The Mask. I did not know that. He, he definitely did some of the early Mask. But yeah, it's interesting. that I like his stuff a lot. And he did a lot of this Joe Kelly run. He did, I think the first thing that really kind of made him break, which is a little before this, was uh, Action 775. What's so funny about Truth, Justice, and the American Way, the elite issue with Kelly? Kelly is, I have found, from talking to various people, a writer who people either, they really, he really strikes or he doesn't. I know a lot of people who love Joe Kelly and a lot of people who he, he leaves them kind of flat. I take it, Will, you're on the ladder of that? Look, I like Deadpool as much as the next guy. But there's just there's only so much of him I can take. And the character and the characters like him work when there is a serious emotional underpinning to them. When we can have these zany moments, when we can have some zingers, when we can be selective with the zingers and we can have <laughs> ones that work. But I, just, I don't feel there's, that there's any real growth to the character through this issue. Like nothing nothing changes about him he's just going to continue to be you know zany absent dad and you know maybe that's the point maybe that's showing how again the character doesn't grow but yeah this one this one left me a little whelmed kelly's as a writer works best for me when he is either doing real hard on your sleeve or completely wacky. And this issue, 
I like a lot of this issue, but this issue tries to straddle those two, and I don't think it ever does either one as fully as it could. I mean, anyone who has read Joe Kelly is kind of like, I don't, you know, his Deadpool is great and it's funny, but nothing else. Read I Kill Giants. If you want a comic that is going to wreck you, read his creator-owned image, I Kill Giants. It is oof. Wreck you I'm in a good way. looking to get wrecked. So I might, so I'm clearly in the minority here because I, I kind of really enjoyed a lot of this uh, issue, even on reread. I, I was a little worried that it might not hold up because I, I, I read it for young. Interestingly enough, when it came out in India, it was in Detective Comics. Hmm. There was a very brief window of time where, where American public comics were being published here and they just sort of mixed and matched everything um the the queen of fables run was uh our jla issue one so that's that's a weird thing to come into a comic this was a this was for me this was i thought this was a batman issue uh as opposed to a jla one but i i enjoyed that plastic man is i didn't get half the references because there were some of them were very american um but i like that he's fast talking not a, the jokes didn't land for me. What, what 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 made it interesting is that this guy is he he just doesn't stop talking. He is he is a nonstop. I have been that guy in the class, the guy who does not stop talking, even though none of his jokes are landing. And uh, so I, I I related a lot to that. And there's there's a lot of it. It felt to me like there was a bit of pain there. Like there was a bit of a guy who could not be enough teaming up with Batman and, and having that heartbreak of knowing that Batman thought better of him and Pastor Man couldn't step up to the plate. Batman gave him his moment, especially towards the end of the issue, saying, this is where you talk to your son. This is the perfect moment. This is a perfect setup to talking to your son and Plastic Man just, just freezes, just doesn't do anything and lets Batman do the, the, the more harsh talking to of his own son he doesn't take responsibility for his kid it's 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 a it's a moment of weakness that i that i i I weirdly enjoy you don't get to necessarily see a lot of in comics that that, that's the reason this comic appeared to me it's it is a it's every reason why you should not like plastic man and yet somehow it made me like plastic man all the more and 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 i didn't (laughs) and you didn't so it it did technically work I, I want to ask this. Let's see if we can find the most obscure reference. And the one that I'm st- still not clear on, page 11. Are we going for Lance Ito? Is that what that is? Oh, that I've got to go back. That I think I remember the panel you're talking about. And that one left me a bit perplexed as to which pop culture reference that one was. But now that you've said Lance Ito, that, oh, that might be it. Because it's, it's vaguely Asian and we're talking about if the genes don't fit, you must acquit. And like, that's not something that Lance Ito would have said. <laughs> And I just, again, that's, that it fully encapsulates, I think, why I really didn't like this issue. It's, 
it's an awkward joke and it's not all that funny because how many years after the Simpson trial was this? Is it supposed to be Johnny Cochran and Plastic Man always has to maintain the color that he is? It would have been really awkward because that would have been blackface and that would have been real bad Oof. even in 2000. Oof. But the, the pencil mustache. Well, I guess they both had mustaches, didn't they? I think they both had glasses, too. Yeah. I got to say, I love Offspring turning into a Triceratops. I thought that whole bit and Monkey draws the hell out of that Triceratops. A bouncy triceratops a couple of panels later, which is also fun. <laughs> and wearing a baseball cap, because yeah, why not? <laughs> it uh, it does set up many, many, many years later a great injustice sequence where where the same character Luke O'Brien is is trying to hide from Batman, so he's constantly hiding as different mundane objects in the apartment, and Batman just walks in. He looks around the apartment and goes. You're the pizza box, and the pizza box goes ah and disappears. You're the uh, you're the remote on the counter. You're this, and he's like, "How do you keep doing that?" Can't beat Batman. You can't beat Batman. And I have to admit, the one moment—it's been—I read this when it first came out, so it's been a long time since I'd read it. Bruce's dialogue when he's confronting Luke is so over the top it sounds like he's doing a batman shtick and when i first started reading i was like oh that's plaz that's plastic man being batman i and then when he gets the end, I was like oh wait, no no that is actually bruce plastic man is the belt but i thought for a second that he had fully shape changed into batman and was delivering it some of that really stereotypically Batman dialogue. I, I do love that Batman completes these, these regular gangster guys like Batman just shows up and they all basically crap their pants. But let me point out four pages earlier, they were fighting him four or five. And that was a very strange moment for me. I, I want to believe that while Luke was in the bathroom, Bruce said something to them. Something, yeah. And off, now off they're just like... Them. Yeah. For me, on a reread, I think the, the weakest part of this is this This sort of reads like a Batman who has never, ever had a Robin. There's this, there's this piece of dialogue point. that comes earlier. Do you know what effect I can have on the mind of a 10-year-old? It, it's not going to be nice. And it's got no self-awareness for the fact that at this point, he's what, uh, dealt with three Robins? I mean, I think Tim Drake was older than 10, but I, I, I think Jason Todd and Dick Grayson were fairly young when he um, adopted them. Dick, depending on the continuity, is 10 or 12 at that point. Jason's an early teen he's 13 14 because he's with bruce for a couple of years and die oh, he does die. dies at 16 and tim is probably 15 or 16 when he becomes robin damien is 10 yes you would i mean damien doesn't come until later uh, after right. this uh but 
you'd think Batman would know how to talk to a 10-year-old boy. Oh, he absolutely does. I, I that yes, that definitely rings false because he's I mean the he would have been around the Titans when Dick was a Titan. And again, they're later teens, but Cassandra and Stephanie are around at this point. He's dealt with plenty of kids. The only way I can sort of know price this is that he's he's hamming up the, the, the mystique of Batman because he's doing the favor for Plastic Man. He's, he's being the kind of Batman he assumes Plastic Man sees him as. I can see that. I also like that this story pulls on one of the threads that doesn't often get pulled on with Plastic Man, but is part of his backstory. He makes some reference to guilt and a nun. Plastic Man is the DC Universe's answer to Daredevil when it comes to Catholic guilt. Hmm. He's Patrick O'Brien. He is flat out Irish Catholic. So nuns and Catholic guilt are a big part of Plaza's character when looked at from a certain angle. So it was, that was a nice little character moment for me, a nice recognition of that bit of his backstory. And I would like to see that explored more. Uh, but yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no. Uh, and I was going to say, there is one page in here that is a lead-in to the next arc that has nothing to do with this. So yeah. th- that one page that leads into a two-parter that leads into the next Justice League mega arc, Obsidian Age. Yeah, that was a very confusing page for me to read for the first time because I had no idea it read anywhere because I was reading it in a Batman comic. <laughs> that, yeah, that is a weird contextless page. Uh, at that point, I just got used to the idea of not understanding the full story whenever you read a comic. Yeah. I and mean, eventually, Plas does step up. He, hmm. he does develop a relationship with his son in the prime earth. So I think Kelly even deals with that more towards the end of his run, which goes on for another 20 something issues after this. That run that run runs until 90. So Actually, yeah, I, I remember it specifically at the end of the Obsidian Age that Plastic Man immediately says, I'm retiring from superheroes a bit to spend time with my son. Yeah, because he goes through some shit in Obsidian Age. Yeah. You, you think what Wade did to him was bad. What what Kelly does to him is so much worse. It's a lot worse. I think I've hit all my points on this one. I'm good. Armand, you good? I'm good. That means, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone else listening to this podcast, it's time to put it on the board. This one's lower than the, the, the first two. We're going to have to have a fist fight if you want to put this above Blades. No. No. Good. Good. You, you know me and my, my love of Blades. I am... Because I didn't want to come up to New Jersey tonight. <laughs> it would be a trip. Yes, I, I feel this was definitely more a me comic than it was a you guys comic. So I appreciate you allowing it on the podcast anyway. Hey, hey, hey. we appreciate you having you. It was a good yeah. time. A, every story is going to wind up on here. We're going to be ranking some stuff that we don't want to... Like, listen, I read this issue and it had some fun moments. I had a couple of neat Batman moments. I did not feel after I'd read this like, well, there's twenty-two pa- the equivalent of 22 pages of my life I'm never going to have back. We're going to be reading things that we're going to have like 
so much of our life that we're going to wish we spent some <laughs> other way. This was nowhere. This is not in that bottom quadrant of who this is. This is not good. Yeah, I think after <laughs> after about what, 44, we start to actively hate the bottom of the list. So I would say definitely this is above this is above Gotham by Gaslight. You know, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I, I don't have a grudge against this book. I think it works. It's definitely above 39. 39 is a clash of symbols. That Joker story with the, the psychic. I hated that one. I like that story. That wind up is high because I really liked it. I love the, the Norm Bray Fogel art in that story. I think some of the stuff in the flashback really works. The frame doesn't work, though. This is above that. Above that is uh, A Grim Night in Gotham. The interlude one shot with the, the Grim Knight from the Batman Who Laughs. Where do you think about this in relation to that one, Will? Hmm. Thinking about the Grim Knight, I mean, it was an idea that didn't have a lot of depth, especially as compared to the other Dark Knights. I didn't like how the art switched off. I could conceivably put it above Grim Knight. I start to run into a problem when we get to Death Cast, the Deciding Vote, and Mad Men Across the Water. I think two books for me that were also maybe a little bit more comedic, but I think I personally like better. Yeah. I think I might, my, my shot, my thought here is in between faces and last chance faces is weird as hell, but so that Matt Wagner art is gorgeous and it has something interesting to say, even though it doesn't necessarily carry it out in the best ways throughout which is i think something else we run into here with a story that has some good things to say but doesn't always hit those notes last chance is the gotham adventures dead man story which is perfectly okay but doesn't have much to say beyond hey it's the origin of dead man if it were in the batman the animated series continuity the, the origin and conclusion of dead man yeah they, the whole dead man arc in one issue so i'm leaning towards making this our new number 37 sounds good to me all right so there we go and now we are at wow over 50 stories who would have thought that we would have gotten this far <laughs> tolerated each other long enough to put together now 17 whole ass episodes good for us yeah yeah so that's wrapping up our night armand thank you so much for coming on the show thank you for having me where can people follow you online if you so wish to be followed as previous guests and my you know long-term partner in crime dan Grote says at the end of wmq and uh, well, uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Armand Babu, uh, A-R-M-A-N-B-A-B-U. Um, and uh, you can also find me uh, pretty much uh, almost weekly on Comics XF, right? Reviewing something or the other. Yep. Armand is my all-star in our DC corner, working on Nightwing and Harley Quinn and co-writing 
super chat and the animated series Harley Quinn comic tie-in. I'm always grateful to have some new Armand in my inbox to send out to all of you. God damn, that man's busy. Damn. Shit. <laughs> Shit. Uh, this is after me pulling back a bit. Yeah, and I believe me, I understand and respect that. <laughs> that is it for this week. Next week, the Huntress takes the spotlight in three stories starring the Dark Knight's sometimes daughter. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grove, June is dead. Long live June. Long live June. Joshua Wheel, Zach Raberoff, and Abigail Hartbaum for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at BatChatComics. And the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and on ComicsXF.com on Thursdays. And support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLaz1013. And I do not wish to be perceived at Will Nevin. Uh, and be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat Roundup of new Bat Books for my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. Will, I believe a good time was had by all tonight. Absolutely. And good night, Miami. I'm out of here. <laughs> and stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.